0: Postcard from Dulcie to Stephanie, dated 11th of November, 1981. Dear Stephanie, I just have to sit down and write you this card. You know, of course, that I've become a yoga fanatic, as I have already indicated in previous communications. Steph, you might think I'm mad, but it does help, especially if you lead a busy life. We just don't know how to relax. Yoga teaches us this. I've just bought myself a book entitled Yoga Over 40. And what they say in there, I'm already experiencing. I'm just thinking how tense you always are. I'm sure if you tried yoga, soon you'll feel a whole different person. If you're able to get an introductory book with illustration, please get it. If I can get another copy of this book, I shall send it. But please do try Dulcie.
1: My name is Neo Rakajani. And I've got a quick service announcement before we continue. This is the third episode of a podcast called They Killed Dulcie." If you haven't heard the first and second episode yet, You need to do that first, otherwise this won't make any sense. Also, I need to remind you, this podcast deals with violent and sometimes graphic content. If there's a lesson to be learned from the story of Darcy September so far, it is that history isn't simple. That decades later, scraps of paper may change how we view the past, and that something similar can be said for people. This lesson isn't over as we travel along the spiralling storyline. It continues with the arrival of a secret informer to the apartheid government on the scene in Paris in the days following Dulcie's murder. But before then, this story continues in Cape Town, where Dulcie's childhood friend and comrade Betty van der Hayden, remembers the dangers of the confidence of youth. This episode is called Double Agents.
2: We were so sure that what we were doing was the right thing and that it was possible. Well, the confidence of youth, we had it in bushels. We never really, we were too young to understand exactly strength of the state, you know, and the way the state could bribe just about anyone.
0: The National Liberation Front had not been existing for long before the young freedom fighters had to learn how strong and ruthless the enemy was and also face some hard lessons about their own strength. It all began with the growth of the movement. New members had been recruited to cells across the country. One of the new members, it turned out, had been involved in illicit diamond dealing in Kimberley, South Africa's biggest diamond producing town. This new cell member recruited a friend to the group, but it turned out that this new recruit was really a spy for the police diamond squad. He had been spying on his comrade all along, and that's how the walls started closing
2: in. Hers was the first place they entered. Dulcie was not an intellectual in the sense that say, Neville was, but she was quick, you know. She was sharp, streetwise, if you want to say, but she had that sort of ability to know what was going on around her and to react quickly. When they knocked at her door, she took whatever she had that was incriminating and she eat it and had big boss. She eat it under her breast and just tied a a gun around her. And they searched and of course didn't find anything. And they left. And Dulcie phoned Neville and said to him that they must be careful the special branches on the way. Now this is the funny thing, you know. We We make such a big mistake, you know. We think that because a person is not intelligent, you know, book-wise or thinking academically and so on, that that person is slow and silly in other ways as well. Because Neville didn't take Dulcie seriously, you know. They didn't take her seriously, so they didn't hide anything. And when the cops came there, they were wide open. Uh, And before we had gone on the trip, we had prepared certain articles to take with us, you know. Anyhow, they they found these things at Neville's place. And arrested Neville immediately.
0: So initially... Dulcie's quick thinking saved the revolution, but because the leader of the group, Neville Alexander who was an intellectual known for being able to quote Karl Marx verbatim didn't listen to her, the group was exposed and Dulcie too was arrested, not at her house but at Bridgetown Primary where she worked. She and nine others were charged with conspiracy to commit acts of sabotage and incite acts of politically motivated violence. Like Dulcie, Betty was also arrested when police came to her school.
2: And the principal told me that I had to come to the office. So I said, I have a class. (laughs) This is business about principal calling you when you're busy. It annoyed me. And I said, someone came to to see me to relieve me and he said to me those are special branch people outside is there anything I should know anything else I should do so I went down to the office and there was the special branch two of them my principal said are you prepared to go with them (laughs) this special branch he doesn't have a choice
0: The Special Branch, or the Security Branch, as they were also known, was the political police. During the 1960s, the Minister of Justice, B.J. Foster, granted them wide powers to track down, detain and torture suspected opponents of apartheid. They infiltrated underground organisations and detained activists without trial. Others were abducted and assassinated, or simply disappeared without a trace.
2: The thing about solitary confinement is that you don't know what's going on. They can tell you anything. After the arrests, the
0: comrades were being held in solitary confinement. It was one of the state's many tactics designed to break them.
2: They didn't trust them. I didn't... just what they were saying to me and so on. So, but then they came and they read me a confession of one of the, of our members. And it was just, you know, too close for them to have just sucked that out of their thumb or only to arrive that on their own. And then I realized, yeah, they've got one person And he was quite a top guy, so (laughs) who
1: was this person? Is
2: that necessary to say?
0: During the interview, Betty sits cross legged on a chair in her living room. A breeze blows in through the door, waving the lace curtain. It's easy to forget that she and others suffered terribly. As someone who has paid the price for others breaking, she isn't bitter.
2: I believe that everyone has an Achilles heel. Say you're the father of two children and they threaten your children, the lives of your children. It's very easy to to see that person breaking, you know. Betty says it's easy to look back at the past and
0: judge those who broke. But unless you have been there, you don't know what you're talking about and you should reserve your judgment. She implies there is a darkness in the experience of torture, solitary confinement and other acts of violence. And nobody knows how they will react if the methods are used on them. But she won't talk about her own experience, and she shares this with many of the other victims of torture and abuse of apartheid. But since we're trying to tell the full story, however heartbreaking it may be, we will share an example of what being detained by the police during apartheid could entail. It isn't necessarily what Betty or Dulcie experienced, And if you want to avoid descriptions of torture at the hands of the police, you should skip the next one minute and 30 seconds of the podcast. This is Pastor Farsani from a 1984 film by the Lutheran World Federation.
3: They forced me to squat on the air. They called this sitting on the imaginary chair. Thereafter, I had to lie on the floor on my clenched fists. They forced me against the wall on my head and kicked me from all angles. And thereafter I had to lie on the floor, raise my legs, and in this position they kicked me on my private parts as much as they liked. They also used sticks to hit me over the head. They threw me into the air and I had to fall on the floor. They bent my head against the wall and they even used chairs to beat me. They also used karate chops and judo kicks. I lost consciousness several times, I don't remember how many times, and there was blood all over on the floor. Uh, Towards evening, when I regained consciousness, they forced me to clean the blood on the floor and also to use the same cloth to wipe the blood on my body. Thereafter, they drove me to Sibasa police station in the evening and told me if I would be alive the next day, then they don't know their job.
0: While Betty made her peace with those who broke, together with her comrades, they decided to show a brave face at their hearing.
2: We also agreed that we were not going to show, be emotional in that dock. We are just going to take the sentence and not give them the pleasure of seeing us break down. We're still young and cocky. <laughs> so... Um, when the time came for them to sentence us, that's how we, act, we acted, except for Dorothy. She broke down in the dock. You know, <laughs> the thing about Dulcie is, Dulcie's a strong person, and she will accept weakness up to a point, and then she will just pull yourself together, you know, and she will come out and say so. And <laughs> she did that with Dorothy. In April
4: 1964,
0: Betty and other central members of the group were sentenced to ten years in jail. Dulcie got five.
1: When Dulcie had made no mistakes, but he had ended up spending years in prison it must have been a powerful lesson in the hard realities of the struggle, how you depend on others, and how the weaknesses or mistakes can have terrible consequences for you. Was our assassination a repetition of history? Was she again a victim of the weaknesses or betrayals of others? Rasmus Bids has left Paris to find out.
5: I've gone to Brittany in the northwest of France, as far as the train line goes. On the station, Jacqueline Durance has picked me up, and on the way to her place, we talk about the detrimental effects of shopping malls on small businesses in Brittany and everywhere, and the remaining socialist monuments in Eastern Europe.
4: And you see the monuments built for Tito and its partisans. They are still there. There are flowers every year, you see.
5: When we arrive at her summer house, I can smell the Atlantic Ocean nearby.
4: Landriot, the name of the place. But that's my house over there.
5: The white one there. Her house from the 1860s is new compared to most of the houses in the area. And Jacqueline has had it for decades.
4: And we're lucky because we've got the sun. Yes.
5: It was here she was when she heard that Dorsey had been murdered. It was a phone call from Dorsey's secretary Joyce, who alerted her to the murder. And before the shock had subsided, the phone rang again. This time, it was the French Communist Party who called Jacqueline to get back to Paris to help manage the chaos after the assassination.
4: So we drove back, you see, as soon as possible. And when we arrived, there was a crowd. There was a crowd, you know, as as soon as people in Paris heard about the murder, they simply went in their thousands in the streets, crying because she's what she has been killed, you know, and shouting against the apartheid system uh, were were the people that probably she met in uh, some of her meetings, you see.
5: Did you have to like then push your way through the
4: crowd or? Yes, I had to in a way to push my way into the crowd, you see. Uh, when I arrived, of course, you see, uh, the, there was no, no, no corpse. The body was away. And, you know, had been taken by the police. There was some blood on the doorsteps, you see, I remember. And so I just uh, start crying, you see, and uh, cry with my friends and try to, 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 to have some sense, you see, and say, now how do we organize things? <laughs> you see, that was very important.
5: There wasn't much time to grieve. Questions nobody had thought about were suddenly important. Questions like, who decides what to do with the body of an exiled freedom fighter?
4: The the first thing I did uh, the next day was to go to the, um, what do you call it, Uh, the the, the people who did funerals, you see, Um, uh, the undertaker. That's it, (laughs) looking for the word. You know, undertaker, you see, and we explain uh, that it was not going to be an ordinary Funeral uh, that we gave the orders and nobody else.
5: The next day the ANC representatives from London arrived and amongst them was Dulcie's replacements as Paris representative.
4: I think that Solly Smith arrived.
5: A man named Samuel Canile, who is known to everyone as Solly Smith. A complicated character who's come to play an important role in the theories around Dolce September's murder. He arrived at the scene as part of the group that went to the morgue to identify Dolce September's body.
4: And we went to the morgue, the mortuary, and we had to recognize the body. You know, it's really shocking. Somebody you have seen alive is just, you know, lying dead on a a trawler. But in fact, she there was bandages all over her skull. So what we see was her face, you see. On one side of her face only. That was what we were shown. not the other side. She was okay. It was really her. So, did she receive the bullet behind or in her face? That's the question, you see. Because when people say there were two killers and she received the bullets in her face... I don't see why she looks so, so clean in her face, you see. So that's a bit of a mystery as well. Mm. Mm. We had to say, yes, it, it's her, and that was all. And you know, it was the most amazing thing. But I never thought about it. Uh, she did not have that uh, colored complexions. She was like, uh, she was purple.
5: After the investigations, the mystery continued. It didn't appear like the police were making much progress. And it seems like they neglected interviewing even some of Dulcie's closest colleagues. The days between Dulcie's murder and her funeral were frantic and confusing. And in hindsight, Jacqueline regrets one thing. She had the opportunity to go to Dulcie's flat, but she
4: didn't. The flat was emptied. And at the time, you see, I should have, honestly, I should have gone. And, you know, a lot of things disappeared. lot of things disappeared. Who took a diary? Was it the special service in front? Because apparently they came to the flat and had a look at it and probably picked up what was interesting for them, you see. Afterwards, the ANC came probably pick up something interesting for them. And finally the family, you see, but the family took the her personal things. But probably in the flat there should have been more than that.
5: In Dulcie's office, the police also searched the premises. But at least here, the ANC personnel were present. They would have had the chance to secure evidence. But then, no organization is stronger than the people in it.
4: In in, in the office, I think that uh, Joyce was there all the time. But of course, after Dulcie, you know, it was Solis Smith who took our job. Or oh, we know now that Solly Smith was double agent.
5: If the police, the ANC, intelligence agents, or even a South African double agent went through Dulcie's things, and removed evidence that could have helped us find out what happened to her, those documents or reports about them might have been recorded. And if they were, they might still be stored in the place where the memory of the state resides, the archives. In the next episode, we'll take you through the boxes and yellowing paper to find out what they reveal. For now, we'll stay in Paris, where Dulcie's replacement, Solly Smith, turned out to be a very different character than he had been. Did you work with him as well then?
4: A lot. Uh, when he came down, <clears throat> even uh, Joyce, you know, said, was, OK, well, help him, you see, because he didn't speak a word of French. So I, I helped him, you see, and he was with his wife. And his wife was... Well, honestly, she was very sick, you know, when she came over. But she drank a lot. So I helped her, you know, as I could. I even, you know, go and to find some treatment for her and that sort of thing. And Solly Solly was, um, at the beginning, you see, I didn't see anything wrong with him. What astonished me is that the French authorities, who said that Dulcie was just a hysterical woman and we didn't need any help, you see, or protection or whatever, suddenly, Solly had a chauffeur, Solly had bodyguards, Sully was overprotected, but, first you see I was a bit naive you see and I said well why make such a fuss about Solly of course they don't want a second one to be killed you know that was my first reaction gradually I came to understand that it was not as simple as I thought and you know Solly started to talk to me and said Ah, uh, you know, yesterday I went to the embassy, South African embassy. Ah, uh, yes, I met people, I talked with them, and uh, one time I said, "But Sully, I don't understand. Why do you go to the South African embassy? I mean, it's. I mean, you you seem in such a hurry to go there." He said, "Yes, you know, we should prepare." build the ground, because, you know, when we win, we, you know, we should prepare the ground. So it sounds a bit strange to me, anyway. But it's true that I was very friendly with him, because I had some pity for him as well, you see, because it's, well, his wife drank a lot, but he drank a lot as well.
5: When we speak to people about Solly Smith, something strange happens. On one level, he seems like a very sinister character, a double agent who went in after Dulcie was murdered, cleaned out the evidence and reported to his handlers at the South African embassy. But there's another side to Solly Smith. People who knew him seems to pity him, and the image of the cold-hearted double agent somehow fades. And this is where the character Solly Smith becomes even more complicated, because according to Chaglin, he seems to have been genuinely surprised at how he was received in South Africa. That's not the reaction you'd expect from a cold and calculating double agent.
4: When he went back to uh, his country, he sent me a few letters afterwards. And he sent me a letter, the last one I received. Well, my country was not, did not receive me in a friendly way. You see, and I was very surprised by this. You know, my, my country did, did not receive me in a friendly way. And what does that mean? Not a friendly way. Um, and of course, when we t- I talked to him, he was expecting to have some job, you see, in the new South Africa. And of course, we know that he died very quickly. And the rumor is that he was poisoned.
5: And maybe the strangest reaction to Solly Smith came from the spy Craig Williamson. When we met him in Johannesburg, he spoke matter-of-factly about operations where he was responsible for the death of even children. His version is that he was a soldier in a war, that he simply did his job. It's the story that justifies his actions to the world, and maybe even to himself. And he shows no emotion but with Solly Smith, it's different. In the case of Dolce September, uh, it's been said that Solly Smith, who came afterwards, was a double agent. Um, how did that work with him? Do you know?
6: No. You know, I mean, let's let him rest in peace. Why? No. No, it's. It's a strange thing.
5: When people talk about Soli Smith, everybody seems to think that he was some sort of a, a type of victim, like somebody that people feel sympathy for him. Why?
6: You know, this spying game, a lot of people can end up working for the wrong side without knowing they're working for the wrong side. In my experience, very, very few people in the liberation movements ever actively changed side. They might have ended up working for the wrong side, but false flag was the way these things were done. Um, I mean, I had people working for me who thought they were reporting to the Communist Party.
1: Can I, can I just ask something? Mm-hmm. And Craig, this is just watching your reaction to the Solly Smith question. What do you know of how he died?
6: Personally, I don't know, but I suspect he was taken out. By? I
1: Because?
6: They thought he was a spy.
1: And you you're willing to bet everything that he wasn't really a spy; he was
6: being used. You know when you recruit or when somebody's recruited lots of um elements come into play i i i very much doubt that solly smith at any stage thought that he was working for south african intelligence
5: but you know that he was i mean it sounds like you know that he was
6: Information was being, was coming from him, yeah, but it doesn't mean he was working for us. How
1: was this information coming from him? How was... No, I don't,
6: I mean, I, I just, what... I mean, I, I got, I got information from Solly, but he... I was giving him money. But the money was coming from the IUF. I always liked him, and I felt sorry for him. I think he—he's just, you know, in this this game we play, especially in intelligence world, it leaves a trail of detritus behind it, of of, of human misery and um, misfortune.
1: Soli-Smith was probably also killed by apartheid in some way. And his death also remains a mystery. So does the extent of his transgressions. Regardless, he paid the price for his weakness. We'll finish this episode at a high-level reception in Paris, where journalist Evelyn Hronig remembers meeting Soli-Smith. Sometime after the murder.
4: He was very drunk and he cried. And he talked to me crying. And that is when he said to me, she phoned us. She phoned Aziz and me in London all the time that we must come to Paris. And we didn't.
1: This podcast is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za Thanks for listening.